suspect listeners welcome back to another episode if you can't tell just by the first few seconds i fixed my microphone i don't know really what was going on i think it might have just been like a internet connection issue with the platform that i use to stream the podcast but i'm not really sure so i downloaded some different software and it's working perfectly tested it out hope it sounds good to you guys but oh that was my knuckle okay um but yeah so thank you for joining me for another episode i believe that this is gonna make episode number 24 um yes i'm correct i lost track oops In the last episode, my friend Hannah joined us. I hope that you guys all enjoyed that. Um, I really enjoyed hearing her perspective on the Gabby Petito case and just really having her overall perspective on anything true crime-wise, case-wise is really interesting considering she has that criminology major. So her and I go back and forth really often about a lot of different shit, honestly. So I was really happy to have her on last week. Um, Last week, I didn't really give you guys much of an update as to what's been going on just because I kind of wanted to jump right into that case, especially because I was recording in my fucking car and people were walking by me and looking at me and it was just making me feel super uncomfortable. So we're back this week with the mic, no recording in the car, back to normal. Um, And we're going to just kind of catch up, I guess, as to what's been going on in the world, different things. You guys know how I like to talk about current events. So, um, oh yeah, I forgot. I went to Florida. I didn't really get to talk to you guys about that. But yeah, I went to Florida for like two and a half weeks, I want to say, maybe like a couple days less than that. But it was really fun. I got to spend some time with my family and my siblings and obviously my friends that are there. All my friends are there, so (laughs) I love Colorado, but all of my friends are literally in Jacksonville, so it was nice to go back there and just be kind of back in my element for like two and a half weeks. Um, I still didn't get to go to the beach, which sucks, because every time I've gone to Florida, I've been to Florida now three times since I moved here, and every time I've gone, I always say I'm going to go to the beach, and then just never happens, but honestly it's my fault because I fuck around and go get a tattoo and then any of you with tattoos know that it's not smart to have sun directly on that after getting that so yeah speaking of tattoos I got one when I was there in June I got the suspect podcast logo actually on my inner wrist which is awesome um it's just really cute you know the whole logo is just cute anyway and it means a lot to me that I could have that And then I got another one on the upper side of my arm um, towards my elbow um, the last time I was there um, at the end of August, early September. So yeah, my sleeve is almost done, which I'm really excited about. So that's normally what I go to Florida. I mean, not why I go to Florida, but something that I do try to do every time I'm in Florida, just because the tattoo prices out here in Colorado are fucking insane. Like, an artist out here quoted me like three fifty for what my artist in Florida did for like a hundred and fifty dollars. So yeah, that's like fucking insane. That's more than double the price. And I just trust my artist a lot more anyway because I've been going to him for so long. So yeah, we're gonna keep doing that. <laughs> we're gonna keep going for the fucking discounts. So yeah, Florida's good. No beach. Family, family, family. Um 
yeah, and then I came back here, and I've just been kind of relaxing, trying to, you know, stay focused on different ways to grow the podcast, different ways to grow my audience, you all listening. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, and that's really it, I guess. <laughs> oh, um... <laughs> Um, I don't know if any of you listening, actually, this is what I want to talk about. I don't know if any of you listening have seen that new show on Netflix called Squid Games, but it's only one season. Most of you listening have probably already watched it. It's basically gone viral at this point, but if you haven't, it's only one season on Netflix, and it's fucking insane. I feel like I watched it all in, like, maybe, like, two days, maybe less than that. I don't really know, but it's basically, like, these people sign up to win money to play like these children's games but it turns into like a game of survival I guess is the best way to say it like if you win you win like cool whatever but if you lose you get eliminated eliminated if you know what I mean so it's really good I definitely recommend it um it was based in South Korea I believe um but it's really a great show really well written and I definitely had my mouth open at multiple points while I was watching it. And I don't remember how many episodes it is, but... And then also there's another show that's very similar to that. Um, it's called Alice in Borderland. Um, same kind of concept of the show, but a little bit different. But it's still, again, a South Korean show based in South Korea. So definitely check that out, both of those. Let me know what you guys think about that. Um, the one with the children's... La, 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 la. The one with the children's games, the squid games, is just kind of crazy to me because that's literal children games like tag and fuck what was another one they had oh red light green light i'm having a space right now but yeah definitely check those out let me know what you guys think um i definitely think that i read somewhere that they're gonna do an episode or not episode but season two of squid Games. so i'll be looking forward to that i don't know when that's supposed to come out but yeah i loved that wish I didn't watch it so fast don't you guys hate when you do that when you find like a really really good show that you like and then you just fucking watch it all so fast because it's so good so you don't want to stop watching and you don't really have anything else you want to watch but then you watch all that and you're just like fuck <laughs> sometimes I go back and watch stuff honestly when I watch it too fast just because I'm like did I miss something like I feel like maybe there was like a conversation or a sentence or like something that I didn't catch but <sighs> That's what I feel like I want to do with Game of Thrones. I miss Game of Thrones so much. I miss watching that. That was like the best time of my life when I discovered that show and fucking binged all of it in like less than two months. The best. The best. So another thing that I wanted... Oh, shoot. I just hit my microphone. Sorry for the sound effect. Um, so another thing that I wanted to talk about before we jump into the episode today, which it's going to be pretty interesting, and I'm hoping to keep some more episodes pushing out, especially now that I got my microphone fixed and I know what I'm doing. You guys, here's the problem. Let me just be honest. I'm very electronically challenged, unless it's like an iPhone. I have no fucking idea. Like even like the Apple computers, like anything I have no idea what I'm doing unless it's an iPhone so my computer is um not I mean first of all it wouldn't even matter but it's not a Mac it's a Windows computer and so I had to figure out how to like connect my interface and my mic to my computer and they get a program that would run smoothly to where the audio was on uh, I don't know it was just a lot I'm 
24 years old and just very electronically challenged. It's not in my favor. So needless to say, um, as the podcast continue, as the podcast continues to grow, I hope that this is something that I can just fucking hire somebody for because I have no idea what I'm doing. All I want to do is sit here, look pretty, and talk into the microphone about this shit, okay? Okay. All right, so a thing that I wanted to talk about that I'm sure a lot of you guys um, did see, um, I actually got <laughs> You guys know how on, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, like, frazzled today, but you guys know how on, like, Twitter where just things that you, like, maybe look at a lot on Twitter or, like, I don't know, I'm a... Um, I'm obsessed with, like, the Bachelor franchise. Like, you guys know that show on ABC, Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. I'm obsessed with all that. So I go on Twitter a lot, and I look up stuff about, like, the recent episodes, like, what people are saying, yada, yada. Um, Well, you know how Twitter will, like, send you notifications, basically, based off of the stuff that you look up on Twitter. Kind of how just, you know, the CIA and the FBI are analyzing everything that we talk about and think about and putting it on our social media feeds kind of like that so I got a notification about this the other day on Twitter I woke up to it about the fucking Zodiac killer possibly being ID'd and I just want to read you guys this article because if anybody well if you are listening to this you're a true crime fan so I'm sure at some point in your life like you've heard about the Zodiac killer and how basically like this unknown individual just like terrorized fucking California for like in the 60s and 70s I think into the 80s like all just taunting the police taunting the public all of it so I just thought this was super interesting I'm going to read you guys this article and then you can let me know what you think about it what your theories thoughts whatever are okay so so the article that I'm going to be citing this information from today is going to be from Fox News and the title of the article is Cold Case Team Says Zodiac Killer ID'd Linking Him to Another Murder. So this is a little bit of a lengthy article but I do feel like all the information in the article is crucial so I want to make sure that you guys have all the information as to what the authorities are saying, what's been released to the public. So yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. So, a team of specialists to investigate cold cases say that they have identified the Zodiac Killer, one of America's most prolific serial murderers who terrorized communities in the San Francisco area in the late 1960s with a series of brutal slayings and unsolvable riddles. The case breakers, who are a team of more than 40 former law enforcement investigators, journalists, and military intelligence officers, They've tackled other mysteries such as the D.B. Cooper hijacking heist, the disappearance of former labor union boss Jimmy Hoffa, and and many other unsolved cases. The group believes that the killer is responsible for a slaying hundreds of miles away that was never linked to him. The Zodiac Killer has been connected to five murders that occurred in 1968 and 1969 in the San Francisco area. Zodiac Killer as Gary Francis Post who passed away in 2018. The team's years of digging uncovered new forensic evidence and photos from Post's darkroom. One image features scars on the forehead of Post that match scars on a sketch of the Zodiac, the team said, which is true. If you guys, you can look this up. If you look up the this composite sketch, I couldn't think of the word for a second. If you look up the composite sketch that they drew of this man back when the investigation was first initiated or different sketches that they've come out since then it does look eerily similar to like this Gary Post guy that they're talking about like 
exact same spots for the fucking scars on his head and it was so funny because i saw this tweet on twitter and they were like how the fuck did this composite sketch artist get this person like exactly to a team the team says that a series of coincidences connect bates and post post was an air force veteran when he received medical checkup for a gun incident at a hospital located 15 minutes away from the bates murder scene a wristwatch with paint splatter on it was collected at the murder scene and is thought to have been worn by the killer Post painted homes for more than four decades, the team said. In addition, detectives found a heel print from a military-style boot, which matched the same style and size of those found in other Zodiac crime scenes and of Post. This year, the Riverside Police Department offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to a conviction in the decades-old murder case. So like I mentioned, they are saying that the Zodiac killed possibly five to six victims, but he's admitted to killing more than 37 victims. The first confirmed of the Zodiac slayings occurred in December 1968 when a man and woman were shot dead in a car. On July 4, 1969, another man and woman were shot. The man survives. Later that year, a couple was stabbed near a lake. The man survived despite sustaining multiple stab wounds. A cab driver was fatally shot in San Francisco that year as well. No one has ever been charged or identified in connection with the slayings. Unlike most serial killers, the Zodiac taunted authorities with complex ciphers and letters. In 2020, a team of codebreakers cracked a 340-character cipher that was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle by the Zodiac. At the same time, at the time, the FBI said the Zodiac case remained ongoing. And this is, what the, um, this is what they were able to decipher. He says, I hope you were having lots of fun in trying to catch me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me, the decrypted message read. And then here's just some stuff that people, once they release the information, claiming that they think that this is who the Zodiac Killer is once they ID'd Gary Post. Some people that actually knew Gary Post came out with some information. Um... Yeah, so I'm going to read that to you. A California woman who lived next door to Gary Post and his wife told Fox News that she does believe that he's the Zodiac Killer after seeing the evidence collected thus far. Gwen said Post and his wife babysat her child in the, eight, in the 1970s and 80s. He would teach her child how to shoot firearms several times a several times a week but was also controlling and abusive towards his wife she said she declined to elaborate further post also became somewhat of a father figure to his son's friend she said he lived a double life as an adult i'm thinking back it all makes sense now at the time when i was a teenager i didn't put two and two together until i got older it hit me full blown that gary is the zodiac Hans Smith told Fox News he spent 10 years hiding he spent 10 years hiding a whistleblower who escaped a criminal posse headed by Post. The man, who the case breakers only refer to as Will, told Smith that the posse roamed California's High Sierra region and that he was groomed into a killing machine. In addition, Will said he witnessed Post burying murder weapons in the woods, Smith said. They put out several bear catches out there just in case something happened. Smith said that he gave Will financial, logistical, and emotional support over the years and moved him around for nearly 10 years in an effort to keep him safe. 
I'm the one that took him to the FBI office and put him on a train and sent him out of state. Another woman named Michelle said that she was common law married to Post's son. She told Fox News she was a victim of harassment by Post and his posse during their relationship that included stuff like damaging her car and other incidents. Despite being dead for three years, some people are so mysteriously loyal to him, said Michelle, who also declined to provide her last name. He targeted young men who didn't have a father figure, she said. It was a posse of three men, but the one did a lot of damage. He still has some kind of control, and he's gone. So I just thought that, like I said, that's a Fox News article, so I just thought that whole article all of this information that they've been releasing is kind of bizarre so they still are saying that it's an ongoing investigation these case breakers former law enforcement military intelligence like these are their investigations but the fbi has not 100 percent confirmed any of this but um you know it's interesting i don't know let me know what you guys think it's fucking crazy Okay, so the case that we're going to be discussing today is actually still unsolved. Um, oh my god, you guys, I just realized it's fucking October. I've, I've actually known that, but I'm just realizing that I need to do like some spooky episodes. Okay, so the episode after this is definitely going to be a spooky one. If you guys have any suggestions, let me know. But today we're going to be talking about the Oakland County child killer. Like I mentioned, it still is an unsolved case. Um, so yeah, let's just go ahead and jump into it. The Oakland County child killer is the name given to the perpetrator or perpetrators responsible for the kidnappings and serial killings of at least four children in Oakland County, Michigan, United States between 1976 and 1977. Between February 15th, 1976 and March 16th, 1977, Two boys and two girls, aged between 10 and 12 years old, went missing outside their homes, which was en route to or from another location in Oakland County, Michigan, just north of Detroit. Each child's body was discovered in a public area within 19 days of his or her disappearance. The ensuing murder investigation was the largest of its kind in the U.S. history at the time. So now we're going to talk about the different victims. Like I mentioned, there are four um, that we're going to be discussing, at least the ones that have been connected to the Oakland child killer, for sure. Oakland County child killer. I'm sorry, that's a mouthful. That is a fucking mouthful. Okay, so Mark Stebbins. Mark was 12 years old at the time. Mark's parents were divorced, and he lived with his mother. He came from a Roman Catholic family, and he was kind of described as a loner, just a quiet and really good student. Mark was last seen and heard from at 1.30 p.m. on February 15th. He talked to his mother on the phone, and he was letting her know that he was leaving the American Legion Hall to head home. He never made it, and at 11 p.m. that night, Mark's mother called the Ferndale Police Department. The Fer- Why did I sound so fucking country when I said that? The Ferndale Police Department to report Mark missing. At about 11.45 a.m. February 19, 1976, a businessman named Mark Botigheimer? Botigheimer. I cannot pronounce that. I'm sorry. Mark B. left his office building and headed towards a drugstore located inside the New Orleans Mall at 10 Mile and Greenfield Roads. 
On his way, something caught his eye in the northeast corner of the parking lot. He saw what looked like a mannequin dressed in a blue jacket and jeans, but as he got closer, he knew that he stumbled into a situation much more. It was a body, a human body, and it was the lifeless body of 12-year-old Mark Stebbins. Another person told police that they walked their dog around that same parking lot just so it could get some exercise. That was around 9.30 a.m. the same morning that the body was found. The man said that his dog was on a 20-foot leash and that they walked that part of the lot. He said if the body was there at the time, his dog would have found it. If that's true, that Mark's body was not there at 9.30 a.m., but it was at 11.45 a.m. when Mark found him, that means that there's about a 2-hour and 15-minute window in which someone or some people dumped Mark's body in the area. Mark was a 7th grader at Lincoln Junior High School. He was only 4 feet 8 inches and weighed about 100 pounds. His strawberry blonde hair would have likely been covered by the hood on his jacket as he walked in the cold, thin air. The autopsy showed the cause of death as asphyxia by way of smothering, but the report also showed rope burns on his neck, wrist, and ankles, and he had two lacerations to the left rear of his head. It appeared that Mark was also sexually assaulted with a foreign object. L. Brooks Patterson, who was the Oakland County prosecutor at the time, said Mark's body was washed by an autopsy team washing away any fingerprints. Which is just like, why did they do that? I mean, I don't know. If you're listening to this and you would know why they would do I mean, that just sounds sketchy to me. I don't, I have no fucking idea. Like, why would you do that? Anybody listening, let me know. Let me know on Instagram. Let me know somewhere because I'm a little bit confused. I don't know. I'm a little, little bit confused. Okay, so the next victim that we're going to be discussing is Jill Robinson. At the time, Jill Robinson was also only 12 years old. Her parents were also divorced. She lived with her mother in Royal Oak, and she visited her father on a consistent basis. Her family was also Roman Catholic. She was described also as a loner, a smart, and a good student. Carol Robinson had three daughters and was recently divorced. She and her oldest daughter, Jill, would butt heads, and on one occasion in December of 1976, they did just that, arguing about biscuits. Jill was asked to help make them for dinner, and she refused. Sometime after a heated back-and-forth argument, Carol told her to leave until she was ready to become part of the family again. It was this argument that led to Jill running away from her home. Jill went to her room packed up her clothes and a blanket into a denim bag. Before she left, she dressed herself in blue jeans, a shirt, and an orange winter coat, and a blue knit cap with a yellow design on it. And then she would leave, just like her mother asked her to. She rode her bike away from her mother and her home. She was last seen at a hobby shop on Woodward Avenue and then the Donut Depot on Maple Road between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. on December 23rd. Jill's father, Thomas Robinson, made a, made a call to the police at 11.30 p.m. the day she left. Jill was found on the side of I-75 north of Big Beaver Road within the view of the Troy Police Station on the morning of December 26, 1976. She was laying on her back, fully clothed, not bound in any way, but a ring of deep, dark red surrounded her, hand, her head. The killer had transported her there and then shot her at a close range in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. It was later decided that Jill was fed and cared for at least three days, cared for for at least three days. 
She seemed to be washed, cleaned, and with no signs of sexual abuse at all, wearing the backpack that she had left home in. Which is just, like, so awful because I'm sure anybody that has parents or anybody that any i mean anybody that has parents that was a dumb thing to say anybody that grew up with their parents or anybody that has teenagers like this is so common like i can't tell you how many times i ran out of my dad's house like pissed off at him like after an argument and decided that i was going to be gone for a few hours or like whatever the case was so just can't imagine like being this mother like that you get into this argument with your teenage daughter and you tell her to leave and then it just all the guilt that you would feel I assume after she does not come back so that's awful it's really sad okay so the next victim is Christine Mihalik Christine was 10 years old at the time Christine's parents were also divorced and she lived with her mother in Berkeley so we're kind of seeing a trend in these three victims Um, all under the age of 13 obviously all with divorced parents living with their mother um She lived with her mother in Berkeley, Michigan. Christine was described as a shy, quiet, and average student with few friends. She was a fifth grader at Patton Gill Elementary School. Christine was reported missing on January 2, 1977, after she failed to return home from a 7-Eleven store on 12 Mile Road in Oakshire. Her body was found on its back, knees drawn up when a Franklin Village mailman, Jerry Wanzi, saw her. He saw her blue jacket in the snow on the same route he had been driving for eight years. Wanzi, the mail carrier who found her, said that he saw a hand and it scared the hell out of him. Before her body was found, she had been smothered to death 24 hours earlier and her body lay within view of the nearby homes. State Police Sergeant Robert Robertson St. What the fuck? St. Police Sergeant Robert Robertson supervised the remover of the removal of her body. When Christine's body was found in a snowbank at the end of a dead-end street in Franklin Village, it was so frozen, officials had to wait until the following day to perform the autopsy. The autopsy later determined that, like Jill Robinson, Christine had not been sexually assaulted. Christine's mother, Deborah Escroft, said, People keep talking about the Royal Oak girl, Jill Robinson, but I'm not even going to think about that. She said that in an interview on January 5th, 1977. At the time, Christine had two younger brothers, and according to her mother, they kept asking, when is she coming home? As of late January 1977, Patterson had no evidence to link Mark and Christine's deaths. Timothy King is our next victim, and at the time, Timothy was 11 years old. Timothy, though, his parents were not divorced. He lived with both of his parents in Birmingham, Michigan. His family also was Roman Catholic, though. He was described as an outgoing boy who was athletic and well-liked. On a chilly evening in March of 1977, March 16th to be exact, Timothy King left his Birmingham home with 30 cents that he had borrowed from his older sister Catherine, and he headed to the local corner store. He wanted some candy, and it wasn't rare for him to make a trip about three blocks on his own. He left with his skateboard and his football, and he headed towards the Hunter Maple Pharmacy. A clerk, Amy Walters, said she'd sold Timothy candy, and he left through the back door into a dark parking lot around 8.30 p.m. Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tobin 
said whatever happened to Timothy happened between the time he left the store and before he got home. It doesn't look good at this time. Timothy's older brothers, he had two, were not around. One was babysitting a neighbor's kids at the time and the other one was rehearsing for a school play. Timothy's parents were out to dinner at a nearby Birmingham restaurant. According to Catherine, Timothy's sister, Timothy asked that she leave the front door open so that when he got back from the store, he could just get in pretty easily. Catherine also left for the night. It would have been the first time that little Timothy would be at home alone for any time period. Timothy's parents got back to the house around 9 p.m. to find the door open, but there was no sign of Timothy. This was now the seventh child that had gone missing in the area. The six prior to Timothy had been found murdered. Timothy was only the second boy. The hysteria was at an all-time high. The King family searched everywhere for Timothy. They called his friends. They searched the neighborhood and the surrounding areas. By 9.15 the next day, Chief Tobin called on the task force requesting their full involvement. By Thursday afternoon, the day after Timothy went missing, headquarters were established in the Adams Firehouse, just a few blocks from the King family home. Door-to-door searches were conducted and classmates questioned. By Thursday, 100 lawmen from Oakland County volunteers, Oakland County Sheriff's investigators, the county helicopter, and the special Oakland County Task Force were all scouting the area. That Thursday, the King stayed behind closed doors most of the day, but did say, we very, very much want Timothy to come home. That was Barry, Tim's father. We love him very much. He had a basketball game Saturday and missed practice today. He's active in a school play. He's an achiever and a participator. We just love Tim and want him to come home, Barry said. Which is just so awful. Like, stuff happening to kids just, like, breaks my heart. It breaks my fucking heart. Barry told reporters that the week before Tim told his mother that he wouldn't speak to strangers, that he'd run away from them. Barry King decided that he would make a statement to his son, which he did on local TV. We've been realistic about the problem since it happened, Barry King said. I want to say hi to Tim. We love you. Stay tough. Say your prayers. And we're with you, buddy. Barry King also made a personal plea directly to the abductor. I don't know if you have children or if you want them. Please treat Tim the same way you would treat your own child. Talk to him. He's a talkative kid. I don't know if you have a brother or want one, but Kathy, Chris, and Mark said to treat him just like you would a brother, but we want him back. Please send him back. A day later, on March 23rd, Tim's body would later be found by a motorist on a dirt road near a very busy intersection in Livonia. Tim was wearing the same clothes as he had disappeared in, and 15 away from him lay his skateboard. Autopsy results showed that whoever took Tim had taken care of him. They had fed him his favorite meal, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and cleaned and groomed him thoroughly before they suffocated him, but they also raped him while he was held captive. Okay, so those are the four victims that they have been able to link to this um, specific cold case, but so now we're going to go a little bit into the investigation and theories about the killer. After the discovery of Mechalik's body, authorities noticed similar Authorities noticed similarities shared by her case and those of Stebbins and Robinson, and reports were released warning the public that a serial killer was possibly operating in the Oakland County area. 
the Michigan State Police led a group of law enforcement officials from 13 communities in the formation of a task force devoted solely to the investigations into the killings of the children. Eventually, a woman came forward with some vital information. She said that she saw Timothy talking to a man in the pharmacy parking lot. She said Tim and the man were talking about two car lengths away from her. She was able to describe the man she saw talking to the boy, who she did believe was Timothy King. This witness also described the vehicle she believed that the man was driving, a dark blue AMC Gremlin, a subcompact car with a white stripe on the side. She called it a hockey stick stripe. Police say the man described by witnesses was between 25 and 35 years old, white with a dark brown haircut and a shag style. He had sideburns, a fair complexion, and a husky build. And a husky build. He was driving a late model blue AMC Gremlin with white wall tires. All related killings happened on days that it snowed. All children were last seen within a mile of the Woodward Avenue between 9-mile and 15-mile roads. All children were fed and cared for. The killer either bathed them or made them bathe. Both male victims had rope burns on wrists and ankles. A psychological profile created by police described the, described the killer as fanatically clean, smart, and sexually abnormal. The big, poli- the big lead police had, even as of March 24, 1977, was the witness who saw Timothy King speaking with a man inside of the AMC Gremlin. A witness claimed to have seen King being abducted by two men, one described as being in his late 20s and the other described as bearing a strong resemblance to serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Disclaimer, I'm sure most of you have probably heard about him and if not, look that up. He was a sicko who was allegedly in Michigan around the time of these killings. Gacy's DNA did not match DNA found on these victims' bodies. Christopher Bush. Let's talk about this man named Christopher Bush. Christopher Bush was a convicted pedophile who lived in Bloomfield Hills. For decades, victim, victims' family members have believed that Bush could have been the killer. In 1977, Gregory Green, 27, was arrested on child sexual assault charges. Green, Green led investigators to 26-year-old Bush, telling them that Bush had killed Stebbins. However, Bush and Green both passed polygraph examinations. Green was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for sexually assaulting young boys. Bush got Bush first got probation for the same exact charges before ultimately taking his own life. Which just like my whole thing with them passing off like this polygraph examination. Oh, they they both passed polygraph. That's not su- sufficient in court. So why are you using that to base an entire investigation like i don't know that's kind of baffling that's kind of weird police sources had said that bush's suicide scene was suspicious and may have been a murder as he was shot between the eyes and had no blood splatter and no gunshot residue on his body they know that he had a drawing of a tortured boy that closely resembled victim mark stebbins also blood-stained ligatures were found in his apartment he had a blue Vega car, which looked like the infamous blue gremlin spotted at, one of the abdu- spotted at one of the abductions. It was later revealed by investigators that Bush was in custody while police investigated the killings and admitted that he was a pedophile. 
Investigators wanted to keep him in jail, but he was let go after he agreed to a plea deal. However, none of that matters now after the investigators say that Bush did not commit the murders. There isn't a piece of evidence that we can point to and say Mr. Bush killed Timothy King, Jill Robinson, Christian Malek, or Mark Stebbins, said Paul Walton, Chief Assistant Oakland Prosecutor. Which is just like, are you sure? Are you sure, Chief? Are you sure there's not enough evidence? Because that sounds kind of fishy to me, Chief. Or are we just writing him off? Did he really kill himself? That's what I want to know. I think it's fishy when they like tie somebody to a big case like this and then they all of a sudden commit suicide. After all the fucked up shit they've done, I don't think they're going to commit suicide because they got arrested. Like I think that's just... Theodore Lamborghini and his partner in crime, Richard Lawson, were a part of a 1970s sex ring that preyed on young boys in the Detroit's Cass Corridor. Out of the five men involved, Lamborghini and Lawson were the only two living members of that ring when they were charged in 2006. Lamborghini faced 19 counts of sexually assaulting children, while Lawson faced 28 similar charges. On March 27, 2007, investigators told Detroit television station WXYZ that Lamborghini was considered the top suspect in this case. Lamborghini pleaded guilty to 15 sex-related counts involving young boys rather than accept a plea bargain that would have required him to take a polygraph test on the Oakland County killings. He also rejected an offer of a reduced sentence in exchange for a polygraph on the case. Which is also is just like fishy. Like, why why wouldn't you take the plea deal for that? If you know you could probably pass that bitch because you probably can't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. The polygraph thing to me is just like so uncertain. Like they use that, but then I don't know. It's just uncertain to me. It's not a hundred percent. And I don't like stuff that's not 100%. I need to be positive. Lawson, who was already serving a life sentence for murder, told WDIV in 2006 that he knows who the Oakland Child County killer is. WIV later, WDIV later obtained documents detailing molestations of many children in the 70s and 80s. Three new names of suspects in the investigations were listed and one of those names matched the one Lawson gave as the Oakland County child killer. The name Lawson gave was Bobby Moore, one of the deceased members of the sex ring. Investigators said that they were looking into all of those people. Investigators also said that they did not believe Lamborghini or Lawson to be the killer, but they did think that the men had valuable information that could help solve the case. Lamborghini is serving a life sentence at Ken Ross Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. In July 2012, Prosecutor Cooper discussed Archibald Edward Sloan in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville. A hair found in the car is a DNA match to evidence at two of the crime scenes, Mark Stebbins and Timothy King's. The hair is not his, but police believe it to belong to an acquaintance of his. Sloan is reportedly the owner of the car where this hair was found. Prosecutors were considering him an accomplice to the suspect. He could be a direct link to whoever the killer is, prosecutors said. It is believed that Sloan worked at a garage or a gas station near 10 Mile and Middle Belt Roads during the time of the Oakland County chill 
during the time of the Oakland County child killer murders. Seven years after the death of Timothy King, Sloan was arrested again. He was charged with two counts of first-degree criminal sexual conduct. The offense took place in October 1983. He was sentenced to life in prison in January 1985. Sloan, who is 77 as of this research, is serving his life sentence at the Gus Harrison Correctional Facility in Adrian, Michigan. Okay, so wrapping up here, in February 2019, the Investigation Discovery Channel aired a two-part, four-hour documentary about the Oakland County child killer and all the killers and the victims. At the same time, WXYZ-TV investigative reporter Heather Collado announced that a key suspect, convicted child sex offender Arch Edward Sloan, had failed a polygraph test when he was interviewed by the Oakland County killer when he was interviewed by the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force in 2010 and in 2012. Back in 2012, new DNA technology found that Sloan's car contained hair with the same profile as evidence found on the victims. However, it is not Sloan's DNA. So, it's in his car, but they can't match the DNA to him, but it is probably somebody that he knows or knew at some point. So... That is the Oakland County Child Killer. All that information that I gave you, you can find from clickondetroit.com slash news. Um, Oakland County Child Killer case background. That is where I cited all of my information in today's episode. So yeah, it's still unsolved. I mean, they've been investigating this for a long time. Had a lot of different suspects, a lot of different leads, but nothing has been cracked or nothing's been closed. So Ooh, that's a lot. Anything that happens with kids just, like, breaks my heart. I think if you do anything to a child, like, I believe a lot of people can be rehabilitated. So if you do something bad, like, yeah, you can change yourself or change your mindset or change your perspective or make amends or whatever the case may be. But when you do something to a child, I just think there's no way, like, after you bring harm to a child, an innocent being, like, there's no way to rehabilitate that. Like, that's just awful those poor young babies all under the age of 13 their parents oh could not imagine that could not imagine that as a parent I'm not a parent but if I was a parent I could not imagine that so you guys let me know what you think about this case if you have any more information or any more theories or any more suspects that were named that I did that mention that are obviously or that are also interesting perspectives please shoot those over to me on Instagram. I would love to hear them. You guys know I love to spiral. Spiraling is an all-time favorite for me. You can find the podcast Instagram at suspect podcast on Instagram. I post about every episode on there. Any kind of giveaways, any kind of new information or current events will all be on suspect podcast. You can also follow my personal Instagram. Um, go to the podcast Instagram and my personal Instagram. Katie Kennedy is linked in there as well. So follow both, follow one, whichever one you guys want. If you have any interesting case suggestions, you can send those over to me on Instagram or also you can email me at suspectpodcast1 at gmail.com. Send me any interesting theories, any interesting stories that you have, anything crazy that's happened to you, anything really that I could read on here. I would love to do that. So send those over to me. Thank you guys for listening. I really, really love you guys every time. Um, I post a new episode, our audience grows more and more, and it's just, 
so fucking cool to watch to be honest with you like when I first started this I didn't expect it to be where it is now so I hope I can say the same thing in a year and it really is all thanks to you guys tuning in listening to the episodes sharing with your friends leaving a rate or review on Apple Podcasts. if you haven't done that yet please go do it, it takes two seconds it really helps me out thank you so much um yeah so I just really am so thankful for you guys and I hope that we're able to keep growing this and keep talking about these cases keep that we can just keep educating ourselves and others on different things that we maybe didn't get to learn or didn't have the opportunity or the access or the resources for but that is the cool thing about you know 2021 is that we have all the resources available at our fingertips so i hope that we're all using those to change the fucking world baby i don't know so thank you guys for listening i don't know I hope to have another episode out um, by possibly the end of the weekend. Something spooky. So let me know what you guys want to talk about. I think I did the Candyman last year in October, and that was a fun one. Um, Not fun. I'm sorry. That's fucked up to say. You guys know what I mean. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I love you. Please share this with a friend. Share it on your Instagram story. Share it somewhere. I really appreciate it if you do that. That helps me so much. Until next time. Stay safe, wash your hands, be nice.